Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Part 2 of Article 250, System Grounding. This is Episode 23. In this section, Roman numeral part two, we're going to look at system grounding. That is, taking one of the active, current-carrying system conductors and connecting it to earth. Most of the electrical systems we work with at line voltages fit this description. In today's episode, we will not discuss terminology or basic concepts that relate to the purpose of grounding and bonding of an electrical system. That's in the previous episode, so... If you need those for a proper understanding, you may wish to go back to episode 22. Those topics are thoroughly discussed there. Now, this is going to be a long episode, so settle in. Uh, I'd like to spend a little time on it because quite often we get used to using the three tables and the text around it in Article 250, but the fundamentals of how and why we ground, and in some cases, why we do not ground, That's all here in Part 2 of Article 250. Now, it's understood that sometimes the same conductor, the same screw or bus bar, also accomplishes not just grounding, but also bonding. Looking at a roadmap figure in 250.1, Part 5, bonding, has a line drawn directly to Part 2, system grounding. And at times it will look like that a requirement seems to double up. But our codebook is merely trying to keep the two concepts separated, even though it might be the same piece that's doing the job, the same conductor that's doing both grounding and bonding. Bonding is, of course, connecting metal parts together to ensure that they are continuous. Grounding connects objects or systems to earth. So here we're specifically looking at the latter, but bonding is always thrown in and into the mix, and you'll see that taking part of the electrical system and saying, this here conductor, we want you to have the same voltage potential as the dirt we're standing on. That's the concept of grounding that we're going to address today. So if you do have your codebook available, take a look at part two, Roman numeral part two, system grounding. And it goes all the way from 250.20 to 250.36. It spans everything from low-voltage systems to high-voltage systems. Everything from things that we do not ground to things that we're permitted to but not required to ground and also those things that we must ground. So 250.20, entitled Alternating Current Systems to be Grounded, kind of sets the pace. In general, we would expect a system to have a ground or at least a ground reference. Generally, we say that circuits less than 50 volts are not required to be grounded, but there are some exceptions. If the supply side of the step-down transformer that feeds the lower voltage system, if the supply side exceeds 150 volts to ground, or where the supply side of the transformer is ungrounded, or 
where the low voltage conductors are installed outside as overhead conductors. So all three of those cases. We're going to also ground the downstream electrical system. The first of those two are to provide system stability because the upstream side doesn't have a ground reference. Whereas the last, the overhead conductors, well, they could be subject to something like a lightning event. And so it makes sense that when that overhead conductor lands somewhere, we don't want our equipment to become the path to ground. It's going to fry it. We want to have something that grounds the system ahead of it coming to our electrical equipment. So from 50 volts to 1,000 volts, generally we find that systems are required to be grounded. And if the system has a neutral, it is always the neutral that must be made the grounded conductor. Over 1,000 volts, the code forwards us to 250.188 to determine the grounding needs. And then there are impedance grounded systems where none of the phase conductors have a direct connection to earth, but a ground reference is provided. These shall be grounded in accordance with 250.36 or 250.187. Next we have 250.21, alternating current systems of 50 volts to 1000 volts not required to be grounded. The items that are listed in Part A are permitted, but not required to be grounded. What are they? Well, they're things like industrial furnace circuits from melting, refining, smelting, those sorts of things. Or separately derived systems that supply strictly an adjustable speed drive for motor control. Or separately derived systems that have a primary 1000 volts or less and supply only control circuits where the interruption of the process would be detrimental. And this might be in the same locations as the first item, which was uh, things like industrial furnaces. Uh, it could also be chemical processes that if they're interrupted or if the sensing mechanisms get interrupted, that something bad would happen. Now, just a quick note before we depart here, because this will come up several times. What is a separately derived system? Article 100 tells us that it is an electrical source other than a service, having no direct connection to circuit conductors of any other electrical source other than those established by grounding and bonding connections. Okay, translation required here. It would be something like an isolation transformer where none of the current carrying conductors of the primary are connected to the secondary. Or a transfer switch for a generator where the transfer switch switches all conductors, including the neutral. Those are just two examples of separately derived systems. The point being that if we have a primary source going through a transformer, you can't turn grounding and bonding into a magnetic field and expect it to come out as grounding and bonding on the other side of the transformer. We have to recreate that grounding and bonding system. Part B of 250.21 deals with the installation of ground fault detectors on ungrounded systems. These should be as close as possible to the power source to protect as much of the conductors as possible. As a side note, it should be obvious that systems that have ground fault detection provided ahead of the service disconnect could not have a neutral to case bond or main bonding jumper installed at the service because your ground fault detection system would be in, in constant fault Lastly, Part C gives us the placarding requirements for ungrounded systems. Uh, the plaque or label shall read, Caution! Ungrounded systems operating at... 
and then whatever voltage we have between conductors. 250.22 are the circuits that are not to be grounded. And if we work you know, with regular wiring, sometimes that seems odd. There are circuits that we're not allowed to ground. But there's a method or a reason for it. By the way, if something is not grounded according to one of these principles or rules, it is not that we don't put other kinds of protection in place to determine whether or not a ground fault has occurred. Usually we do. So circuits that are not to be grounded, there are a number of them. Electric cranes that operate over combustible flyings and fibers. There are also some specialty healthcare circuits for equipment, uh, things such as cauterizing knives. They, they cut and suture the small uh, blood vessels that they cut by passing an electrical current through them. That's what fuses them at the end. And those would trip a GFI. Normally in a, a surgery theater, you have GFCI protection for your 15 and 20 ampere receptacles. But some of these pieces of equipment have leakage current that would trip out a GFI. So for these, we have a reduced voltage to ground, a current limitation device, and current monitoring for leakage current. But there is no grounded side to the, uh, to the line conductors. Circuits for electrolytic cell lines in Article 668, secondaries of some low-voltage lighting circuits, secondaries for low-voltage lighting around pools, and Class II lighting circuits that are distributed via a suspended ceiling rail system. Those are all circuits that are not to be grounded. But normally, we ground a system. So 250.24 gives us kind of the big picture view. Grounding of service-supplied alternating current systems. This is the part that probably covers most of the installations that you and I interact with. Most of us are connected to the power grid and receive our electricity needs from a serving utility. So this is the section that applies here. If we have a serving utility, that means we have a service. We have a main disconnect. We have an overcurrent device that provides the overcurrent protection for the system. And of course, usually at that point, we also have grounding and bonding that we apply to the electrical system. That first disconnect is kind of the hub where we transition from the unprotected system of the utility to the protected system that our code requires. 250.24a tells us that if a grounded neutral exists in the line supplied by the utility, we will likewise ground it at the service location. Under one, general, we find that this earth to neutral connection can be made anywhere between the utility demark or the service point and the enclosure containing the first overcurrent device. If you have some of Mike Holt's literature that deals with this topic, you will see that sometimes it shows the ground wire running all the way up the side of the building and popping out and grounding the neutral out right at the weatherhead before the conductors enter the conduit going down to the building. Now, I've never seen that in real life. The point is, it's permitted by the code. Uh, sometime I'd like to try that and just have a hidden camera on it to see what the inspector makes of it. At any rate, just because the code permits it does not mean that it's necessarily a good idea or that the utility company is going to agree on the bonding point with you. Two examples. The NEC permits the grounding to be done in the meter base. However, 
the meter base gets sealed. And thus, this termination is not available for inspection down the road. This connection must remain accessible. The same problem exists for services where the conductors are tapped into individual meters and disconnects from a common gutter. Perfectly legal, and many textbook authors present this method in their illustrations. In our local area, the utility prohibits such installations because it provides access to unmetered conductors and thus potential for you know, unscrupulous customers having access to free power. 250.24A5 demands our attention. It states that the neutral shall not be connected to ground again after the main overcurrent device, except for certain circumstances. Now, the reason is that if we bond ground and neutral connections elsewhere, like in a subpanel, some of the neutral current will flow on the equipment grounding conductors and on the metal enclosures, the raceways, perhaps non-electrical piping, and that's just all around bad news. So sometimes you might get a, a code correction and it's going to cite 250.24A5 if you've bonded both the main service and then the subpanel. The bond only occurs at the main service unless it's a separately derived system. Now, up until fairly recent memory, we had more instances where these kinds of installations were permitted, where we might bond the neutral elsewhere. You might run into older homes that have a three-wire range or dryer. We used to ground the metal case of the range or dryer through the neutral. The zero-volt reference current-carrying conductor that fed the range or dryer. And up until the 2005 NEC, we could also run three-wire feeders to an outbuildings. That's two hots and a neutral and then pretend the second building is a service. That is, we bond the neutral to the case and create a grounding system as long as there were no other metallic paths between the two buildings. The exceptions are either for existing systems or naturally where a separately derived system exists. Those would have to get bonded again. Otherwise, the neutral has no earth reference and no path back to the power source in a ground fault. So as you go about your work, you're going to find older installations where it looks like there's a violation of the current NEC. And while we can't install these as new installations, there are exceptions here to help us out with those that are already existing if we need to maintain an existing system, replace a component of it, etc. 250.24b tells us that in a grounded system, an unspliced main bonding jumper shall connect the equipment grounded conductors and the service disconnect enclosure to the grounded, meaning neutral, conductor within the enclosure of each service disconnect. So notice that this is a bunch of different conductors that have come together here, the usual point of contact being a common ground bus that bonds to the enclosure and has a lug for the neutral to land on, as well as any grounding electrode conductors. Not mentioned here, but if we need to provide a main bonding jumper as a wire rather than a bolt or screw or uh, listed device, it is sized using table 250.102C. In that table, you'll find that within the heading, you're going to see main bonding jumper. Now, most of the time, it's going to be a green screw supplied with a panel board. For large systems, it might be a uh, uh, listed uh, piece of bus bar 
that is designed specifically for that bond. But if we have to provide a wire type, then it's 250.102C. 250.24C is entitled Grounded Conductor Brought to Service Equipment. And basically it says that for a grounded system, a grounded conductor, typically a neutral, not always, a grounded conductor needs to be brought to the service disconnect, even if no neutral is needed for the operation of the equipment. So let me give you an example. You're in the middle of a field and have a 10 horsepower, 240 volt single phase pump. That's it. No other load. Your pump doesn't need a neutral, but in case of a ground fault, which would energize the metal of the installation, the grounded conductor or neutral becomes the fault current path back to the transformer. And this will facilitate the tripping of the breaker or fuse. This conductor has to be sized so that it can carry quite a bit of load. In other words, we don't want this neutral conductor to become the fuse in a faulted condition. At a minimum, it needs to be sized the same as the bonding jumper. And if there is a neutral load, it must also be sized to carry the calculated neutral and maximum unbalanced load. Additionally, there are sizing rules for parallel sets of conductors. Paralleling is permitted. The parallel sets of grounded conductors must carry the expected load, or if minimal, as in the previous example, they can be sized no smaller then table 250.102C and be no smaller than one aught. Even if other calculations or tables give a smaller value, the smallest parallel conductor that we can run is a one aught, even if we don't need it to carry the load. Now, some installations are, are rare, right? They're, they're few and far between, but once in a while you'll see these out in farm country. A corner grounded delta service. Take a look at 250.24C3, 250.24C3, and it describes it in describing the number of conductors in the phase arrangement. It says here that if you have a three-phase, three-wire, delta-connected service, that means you get three-phase conductors from the utility, no neutral, but you only have three wires, right? You got three-phase and only three wires. Now, remember in the previous section, we said that you must have a grounded conductor. In a three-phase, three-wire, utility-fed service, delta-connected, C-phase has been grounded. Now, the first time I saw this in my apprenticeship, it really puzzled me. It was for a three-phase pump out in the middle of a field, but one of the three-phase legs was left unfused and was connected to the case of the disconnect as if it were a neutral. Except I, I could see the transformer arrangement that it was straight three-phase. My pump was straight three-phase. In the field, this is called a corner-grounded delta. One of the phase conductors operates at zero volts to ground, and thus it must be left unfused. The codebook tells us here also that that conductor must be fully sized. Right? It's carrying the same amount of load current as the other two conductors, the other two phase conductors. So in this case, the grounded conductor must be the same size as the other two, you know, quote-unquote, hot conductors. The part that we would be most familiar with when grounding a service is found in 240.24D, because here it kind of describes the actions that we take at a typical service location. 
it says, a grounding electrode conductor shall be used to connect the equipment grounding conductors, the service equipment enclosures, and where the system is grounded, typically it is, the grounded service conductor to the grounding electrodes required by part three of this article. This conductor, that is the grounding electrode conductor, shall be sized in accordance with 250.66. Right, so this is the conductor that goes down to our cold water pipe, our ground rods, our U for ground, those sorts of things. And as a side note, we will cover part three of article 250 in our next podcast. But there are a couple of sections left in this particular one. 250.25 is entitled grounding systems permitted to be connected on the supply side of the disconnect. So this is ahead of the service disconnect. And this section gives the permission to provide a grounding connection in enclosures ahead of the overcurrent device. There are some places where this might be an advantage. But again, one has to make sure that the connection remains accessible after the installation is complete. As mentioned previously, grounding connections in a meter can uh, or perhaps a line side gutter are typically sealed by the utility company. I can think of one example where this permission would be useful. If we have a CT meter and then we have a common gutter and after that we have individual disconnects. We can provide the grounding and bonding for the entire system in the gutter. Now because it's already protected, right, we're downstream of the CT metering, so we've already got the metering in place, then the utility isn't going to be so worried about this particular cabinet and it being sealed because they've already collected their, their money. So there are instances where this is useful. 250.26 is entitled Conductor to be Grounded for Alternating Current Systems. For grounded AC premises wiring systems, the conductor to be grounded shall be specified as follows. So for single phase two wire, we have one conductor that is grounded. One becomes the hot, one becomes, well, it's not a neutral because a neutral is a midpoint in a winding, but the other one becomes the grounded conductor. So perhaps we've got, just as an example, a control transformer. 480 volts on the primary side, 120 volts on the secondary side. There's no neutral. It's just, you know, the two prongs coming off the transformer. So whichever side we don't ground, the other side becomes the hot. Single phase two wire, one conductor is grounded. Single phase three wire, the neutral conductor is grounded. Multi-phase systems having one common wire to all phases, that's the neutral conductor, that gets grounded. Multi-phase systems where one phase is grounded, so here would be corner-grounded delta system, that phase conductor. And multi-phase systems in which one phase is used as in number two, that's single phase, three wire, neutral, the neutral conductor. Item number five, if you were to sketch it out, they're talking about a delta service, three phase, 120, 240 volts. And then we take one of the phases, and with phase we mean a winding here. We take one of the windings and we split it in half. So for delta connected service that has a neutral, that's actually the midpoint of a single winding. The 120 volts that we get off of a delta connected three phase service is really single phase. They're 180 degrees opposed from each other.
250.28 deals with the main bonding jumper and system bonding jumper. So main bonding jumper is at a utility service. System bonding jumpers are at systems that we have created, like a step-down transformer or a generator source or something like that. So where main bonding jumper or system bonding jumper is just a screw, the screw has to have a green finish. And it shall be visible even with the screw installed. And we're familiar with that. If you buy an electrical panel for a house, it comes with a green screw, sometimes pre-installed but not driven all the way in. And if it is for a service location, first disconnect after the service, then we're going to run that screw in. Now, it may be other things. It could be a bus, a bar, um, bolt and nut, lug. It could be exothermic welding, CAD welding, or any of the methods that are listed in 250.8. Sometimes we get stuck on, oh, this is the way that we do it. And then we say it differently and we perhaps think, oh, that can't be right. But bonding jumpers, the rules for them are in 250.8. And if it's of a wire type, and then the sizing for the bonding jumper, either for a main bonding jumper or system bonding jumper, is 250.102C. Now that's simple if you have one enclosure, one set of service conductors. Right? You, you just look it up, and there it is. But what if we split the service into several service disconnects? Right? A, service, a single service may have up to six individual disconnects, and... Those either have to be in individual buckets or individual enclosures, starting with the 2020 code. But how do you do the bonding then? Well, bonding in each enclosure applies just to that enclosure. That is, we look at the size of the conductor that enters that particular enclosure. If there are parallel sets of conductors, the main bonding jumper is based on the total sum of the size of the phase conductors. And then we look that up in table 250.102C and determine the size of our bonding jumper. To bond individual raceways on the line side of the disconnect, the upstream side of a disconnect, we just look at what comes in through the raceway. Whatever size wire comes through the conduit, that's what we use to bond the individual raceway. 250.30 specifically deals with grounding separately derived AC systems. And when you look at them as a whole, they look very, very similar to what we do with a service. Many of the bonding rules for the secondary side of a separately derived service, such as an isolation transformer or a generator with a switch neutral in the transfer switch, will be identical to the preceding section. However, we do find one new term here. It's in 250.30A2. 250.30A2, supply-side bonding jumper. And that hasn't been in our code all that long. If I recall, I think it's the 2005 code that first made mention of it. And finally, in the 2020 code, we got a definition for it. It is any bonding jumper that bonds raceways or secondary enclosures ahead of the first overcurrent device. Right? Because there's no overcurrent protection on these conductors yet, it's no surprise which table we use. These conductors, these bonding jumpers, may have to be able to carry fault current for an indeterminate amount of time. There, there's no breaker or fuse on the hot conductors at this point yet. 
So supply side bonding jumpers are also sized based on table 250.102C. 250.32 then takes a step backwards and says, let's take a look at the whole installation. What, what are we doing as far as distributing power? And it's entitled buildings or structures supplied by a feeder or feeders or branch circuits. And before we read this particular section, let's also think about the fact that we have an entire article that's dedicated to exactly this concept. It's Article 225, Outside Feeders and Branch Circuits. Right? So if you're supplying another structure, another building, Article 225 with its compendium of rules also applies. So there's a couple of highlights in this wordy section. The main rule that you need is in 250.32a and b in the initial paragraphs. And to summarize it, it's that a separate structure shall have a grounding electrode system, unless it is a single circuit, and shall have a separate equipment grounding conductor and neutral that feed it. So in other words, if you're running to a subpanel in an outbuilding, single phase, you'd be running two hots, a neutral, and an equipment grounding conductor. Right? It'd be a four-wire system for single phase. You may wish to look at the exceptions that are in 250.32b1, especially for older existing systems that don't comply with the current standard. Section D also requires a disconnecting means for the feeders or branch circuits that enter the building. Uh, here it doesn't matter if it's just a single circuit. Even a single circuit needs a disconnecting means. So a disconnecting means for feeders or branch circuits that enter a building and if installed to current rules, this enclosure shall be bonded to the grounding electrodes, but not to the neutral or grounded conductor. 250.34 deals with portable, vehicle-mounted, and trailer-mounted generators. So these are temporary installations. This is not something that's permanently installed. 250.34a tells us that portable generators were supplied with cord and plug connected equipment do not require a grounding system. The grounds of the receptacles, however, must be bonded to the generator frame. Similar rules follow for vehicle and trailer mounted generators. And then subsection C, which is independent of the portable and vehicle or trailer mounted rule, states that where a generator is part of a separately derived system, the grounded conductor, that's typically the neutral, must be bonded to the generator frame, and 250.30 would apply in that an appropriate grounding electrode would have to bond the generator as well. So don't misread 250.34 as stating you never need any grounding when you have a portable generator. There are places where you will need to have a grounding system. 250.35 then looks at the flip side, a permanently installed generator. Now here we have to distinguish between a separately derived system and one that is not. If your sole source is the generator and you'll have no utility source, then automatically it's a separately derived system. But if you have a utility source as well and have a transfer switch, then you need to take a look at how is the generator constructed and how is the transfer switch constructed. 
If it is separately derived, the generator side of the installation is treated as a separate entity and shall be grounded and bonded based on the derived phase conductor. If it is not separately derived, then the neutral must float and we rely on the structure's grounding and bonding system at the service location to provide protection for both the utility and the generator supplied wiring. If it is not separately derived, the neutral must float at the generator and the transfer switch must not switch the neutral. And then for the last section in part two, if you're still following along, 10,000 points to you for endurance. The last section deals with something that perhaps we don't see very often. 250.36 is entitled High Impedance Grounded Neutral Systems. So these installations have limited use, but are part of the toolkit in, in keeping small faults from taking large systems out of operation. In the industry, you will often hear them called HGR systems or high resistance grounding systems. The term impedance, right? impedance, that's an ohm value. So high impedance means a high ohm value. And it can be done with a grounding resistor. There's also other technologies that can be used. But what is high resistance grounding? Why would you even consider using it? HRG or high resistance grounding is when the neutral point of an electrical system is connected to earth or connected to ground through a current limiting resistor most often. And there are devices installed to detect ground faults when they occur. In many applications, this type of electrical supply system can continue to operate even with a ground fault because it controls the ground fault voltage on driven equipment to a level that prevents hazards. Now, this isn't something you're going to install at your home. Uh, these, have, uh, these are for large facilities where the uptime of the facility is of utmost importance. So when a ground fault occurs in these systems, ground fault current continues to flow, similar to a solidly grounded system, but it's restricted in current, typically to 10 amps or less, by the neutral grounding resistor. And in trade terms, you'll often hear this called the NGR. Okay, that's the impedance device. Our code calls it the impedance device. Now, this has several advantages. There is sufficient current to detect and locate ground faults. Right? We can find where the fault has occurred with standard troubleshooting methods. However, escalating point-of-fault damage is prevented. Big arcing faults typically can't occur. Touch potential, that is, um, the voltage that's on the equipment between the equipment frame and the earth, is limited to a level that doesn't provide much of a shock hazard. And we can continue the operation of the electrical system until it can be shut down in a controlled manner. The other advantage is that you have a way of limiting transient overvoltages or voltage spikes. Okay, so now that we know what kind of the overall description of that kind of a system is, and it's obvious that this is not a protection technique for, say, your house, where can you find it? Well, you can find it in smelting operations, pulp and paper mills, large electrical distribution. Um, those are all places where uh, perhaps downtime is quite detrimental, either to the process or to people relying on the electrical energy, things like that. So these are permitted for three-phase AC systems, 480 volts through 1,000 volts, and there are three conditions that have to be met. 
So number one, you have conditions of maintenance and supervision so that only qualified personnel service the installation. That will only happen if they have their own electricians, if they have their own engineering, etc. Number two, ground detectors are installed on the system. We still want to detect problems and, and ground faults and repair them when we're able. And number three, line to neutral loads are not served. So this is a straight three phase. There is no neutral in this part of the system. There might be neutrals downstream, going through a transformer and then creating a neutral. But the part of the system that's protected by high-resistance grounding has no neutral connections. Now, generally, the impedance device, or NGR, neutral to ground resistor, is installed between the neutral and ground with an insulated conductor, no smaller than 8-gauge copper or 6-gauge aluminum. No downstream connections between neutral and ground are permitted or the neutral point and ground are permitted because then it would render the ground fault detection scheme useless. In fact, it would be in alarm mode the whole time and then you wouldn't be able to monitor the system. So there you have it. That is part two of article 250 and a thorough understanding of part two helps us avoid some missteps when it comes to how where, and at times why we make or do not make connections to the grounding systems. And it helps us to provide bonding in only the areas that are needed within the electrical system. Thank you again so much for listening to this edition of Code Talk. We hope that you got value out of this podcast and ask that you please share it around. And if you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www dot inw-training.com where I will have some lecture notes for this and other episodes and for this episode I'll try to get them up in the next couple of days until next time this is your host Frank Seiler signing off from Spokane Washington <music>